0: This morning, we honor the memory, the struggle, the teachings, and the ongoing lessons that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. taught us. We reflect upon the meaning of nonviolence and how we individually and as a community face or look away when there's conflict. So far, you have heard sermons about repentance and repair. Great expectations, mistakes and miracles, transforming hearts among others. These were not chosen randomly. I have been very intentional, intentional in selecting guest preachers and topics that are relevant to our communal lives. The topics reflect my learning so far about this community, its culture, its history, and your hopes for the future, which are now shared hopes. In the short time that I've been among you, we have shared deeply and delighted in the many ways we can participate in growing a vibrant and welcoming church community. We've also identified areas that have not seen the light for some time. Areas that have been labeled conflict and been locked away for fear of further division or intensified conflict. At the heart of my ministry, what I most want to give is love. A love that is real, that is messy sometimes. A love that is courageous, that takes risks. A love that requires the spirit of community. A communal way of being that promotes healing on many levels. At our most recent Board of Trustees meeting, I read aloud my report, which focused on healing. Healing between the staff and past boards. Healing among board members. Healing between the staff, the board, and the congregation and healing in our own hearts. Healing requires repair with intentionality and so much patience and compassion. It requires asking the people who have been harmed whether repair is possible and what that would look like for them. These can be very difficult conversations which understandably we might try to avoid. I'm thinking about all this as I begin to plan my installation ceremony, which, by the way, will be on April 23rd, and you are all invited. (laughs) An An installation ceremony is an important ritual in a minister's life and in a congregation's life that officially announces to the larger community that we have entered into a covenant, into a promise to each other. I consider this ritual holy. It's a promise that we will do our best to bring our best selves, especially during difficult conversations and during hard times. A promise that we will bring always our authentic selves and that we can trust each other and listen to each other deeply. That we can name the harm, that we can ask for forgiveness and offer an opportunity for repair. So when I fast forward from the installation ceremony, I ask myself, what is it that I would want my legacy to be in this congregation? Will it be sermons meant to inspire and strengthen us for the journey? Will it be offering opportunities for all of us to practice cultural humility? Will it be journeying with you all towards liberatory practices that free us all? Will it be my ongoing, incessant call for radical hospitality? Will it be my passion for inclusion of our parents, children, and youth in leadership roles, in meaningful worship service, and social justice actions? Will it be my invitation to collective decision-making practices that are inclusive and fair? Will it be my New York City urban directness that borders on rudeness that might ruffle some feathers? Will it be my commitment for all of us to treat our staff with the same love and respect that we expect from one another? Will it be my feminist, queer, immigrant, indigenous, multicultural perspective applied to every single area of our shared ministry? Yes, 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 yes. And what I hope for the most is to leave a legacy of revolutionary love. Bless you. A love that celebrates change. A love that pivots when needed in order to be more inclusive. A love that weeps and breaks and is mended over and over again. A love that requires that we face conflict, that we name the harm, that we do the work of repair together. It is the same love that you already have for your beloved family, for your best friend and hopefully for yourself. So in that spirit, today I'm going to offer part one of the work of Kazuhaga, author of Healing Resistance, A Radically Different Response to Harm. I'm going to quote extensively, please bear with me, stay with me. As the author himself declares in the introduction, This book contains nothing new, no new knowledge, no new insights, no new wisdom to speak of. Perhaps not the best words to begin a book with, but it's the truth, he writes. Same with the sermon. Probably most of you are already familiar with the works of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Maybe you've read and even participated in workshops addressing um, the development of skills around nonviolent communication. And perhaps you've participated in some of the efforts in this very community to address conflict and bring some healing here. So let us now consider the work of Kazu Haga in the spirit of community, in the spirit of learning together together. Reinforcing what we might already know and gleaning a new understanding about conflict, about peace, about healing, and agape, the kind of love that inspired the life of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. So what's the first word or image that comes to mind when you think of conflict? Anybody say it aloud?
1: Stress, fear, fear, pain, misunderstanding, disconnection, disconnection, anger, trust, friction, resignation, despair, Miscommunication, separation, confusion, Confusion. Inadequacy. inadequacy, guilt, guilt, isolation. War and uh, Uh, getting to the truth are words that came up in chat.
0: Say that again, please, Eric.
1: War is one and getting to the truth is another.
0: War and getting to the truth. Thank you, everyone. No wonder it's hard to face conflict. No wonder we might decide to look away. No wonder... We might default to silence and letting it go. I'm going to quote now from the book by Kazuhaga. We can bring down the entire system and have a worldwide revolution, but if we haven't healed our traumas and learned how to be in authentic relationship with each other, we will corrupt any new system we put in its place. As a new minister, it's my duty to learn about the traumas that are at the root of congregational conflict. I cannot begin an authentic, relevant, inspiring, healing ministry under the illusion that all is well, and whatever happened in the past should stay in the past. That is why I am in constant conversation with our staff with our board, with the different ministry teams, and even people who have left the church to understand the traumas, to lift the veil, to shake the carpet, to unlock those rusty doors and allow the light to bathe our truths and inform our hopes. I also know that ours is a shared ministry journey that I cannot and should not try to do everything alone that we need one another. Like Kazuhaga, I too yearn to be in a community that engages both in personal transformation as well as structural change. A community that understands we need to work on healing our traumas and transforming our relationships if we are to transform our hearts. If we don't upend unjust systems, we will spin our wheels forever. What's possible at the smallest scale is possible at the largest scale. Whether we are talking about intrapersonal conflict within our own hearts, interpersonal conflict between two people, or large-scale global conflicts between nations, the principles, practices, and strategies that guide the transformation of conflict are the same at every scale. Castle Haga goes on to say that we need to resist injustice, to resist blaming, to resist despair, and that we need to do it in a way that is healing to everyone, including ourselves. He describes nonviolence as a way of life, not as a mere strategy or a lesson that we learn from a book or some bullet points from a workshop that we need to dust off when the conflict arises. A way of life, a way of being, a worldview that centers reconciliation and refuses to dehumanize any individual, that cultivates compassion for all beings. How many of us consider ourselves activists? Yeah, many of us do. How many of us consider nonviolence as a way of being rather than a set of strategies that don't include violence? I'm learning that now, but I used to think otherwise. How many of us consider the absence of overt conflict or tension as peace? Sometimes I do. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Kasuhaga teaches us that the concept of negative peace is the absence of open tension at the expense of real peace and harmony. Let me say that again. The absence of open tension at the expense of real peace and harmony. Sometimes the original pain of something doesn't hurt nearly as much as the ways in which that pain goes unacknowledged. Having to bury it, not being able to give words to it can exacerbate it. Having our pain feel invalidated can be one of the most hurtful things we can experience. In these couple of months, I've been asking myself, What is the original pain? What are the traumas? Whose pain is being unacknowledged or invalidated? What has been buried for the sake of avoiding conflict or for fear of appearing troubled, having a chip on our shoulders, or not being good enough, maybe not being perfect? When congregations embark on a ministerial search, it's difficult to put into words the conflicts that have caused division and brought the congregation to the edge of the precipice, times when the congregation questioned their identity and realized their mistakes. Perhaps search committees and church leaders believe that it wouldn't make for a very promising job offer to list all of the root causes of conflict Right? And the necessary healing work that needs to be done by the new incoming minister. Except I actually think that for someone like me, who went into ministry in order to heal myself, my community, the world, I actually think that for someone like me with healing at the heart of my ministry, It is a positive sign of healthy self-awareness and not an insignificant measure of humility and courage to admit when we have fallen short of our goals and ideals, to share and reach out and ask for help when we know that healing needs to be done in order to move forward. Kazuhaga warns us that the mere desire to change will not bring about change, that we need training and skills and practice, practice, practice. He states that a commitment to nonviolence means a commitment to heal the open wounds in our hearts, our families, our communities, and our world. Let me repeat this: a commitment to nonviolence. Means a commitment to heal the open wounds in our hearts, our families, and our world. So,
1: Kasuhaga tells us that
0: the Japanese, there's a Japanese word, Kotodama. I hope I'm saying this right. Kotodama translates to something along the lines of spirit, of the word. Many people believe that the words we voice have a divine spirit to them, and voicing something can have an impact in the material world. In mystical Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and many other wisdom traditions, there are practices of repetitively chanting mantras and sutras out loud, with the belief that the sound vibration carried by the syllables has an effect on our reality. Kasuhaga says that he views this concept slightly differently. He believes that words are nothing more than sounds we make with our vocal cords, And it is the spirit that we put into the words that give it its true nature, its true meaning, and its true kotodama. He says that nonviolence is not about what not to do. It's about what you are going to do about the violence and injustice we see in our own hearts, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in society at large. That it is about taking a proactive stand against violence and injustice. Nonviolence, he teaches us, is about action, not inaction. Dr. King went on to say that peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. Oftentimes in our society, we think of peace as calm, quiet, serene. We conjure up images of watching the sunset on a tropical beach, meditating in the forest by a creek, maybe some incense or scented candles. That can be as problematic as peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. So how do we respond well? In the heat of the conflict, it's hard not to get emotional, right? Once emotions get triggered, it's hard to see things objectively. This is why it's helpful to study the nature of conflict and understand how it operates. You don't improve as a martial artist by getting into street fights all the time. You improve by practicing in the safety of a dojo, outside of the heated emotions involved in a real-life situation. You practice your moves repetitively over and over and over again, so that those skills become integrated and embodied as muscle memory. And when you are in a real conflict, you're not even thinking about it. A saying from Islam teaches us that a moment of patience in a moment of anger prevents a thousand moments of regret. It is oftentimes decisions that we make in split seconds that drastically alter the course of our lives. Kasuhaga writes that he heard someone say, Conflict is the spirit of the relationship asking itself to deepen. Conflict is the spirit of the relationship asking itself to deepen. It is through conflict that relationships are strengthened and we begin to see each other in our authenticity. When handled right, conflict is a sacred gift. Conflict is a sacred gift? Conflict is a sacred gift. Beloveds, let me leave you with these words. Let us ponder until next time when we'll continue with part two and we'll discuss how the different levels of conflict intersect with the different types of conflict. Until then, let us exercise patience. Allow ourselves to reconsider conflict as more than a negative thing. Let us open up to the notion that conflict can be a real gift. Real peace building requires us to learn how to have the conversations we don't want to have. In the name of love, that a shine, a light on those places and people that are in need of attention, visibility, and healing. Amen? Amen? Amen!